Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, thank you Ed. I am grateful for spring coming in and the NHS after having an unexpected, as they always are when you turn up to A&E, it's kind of in the name, a little visit. Um, Mm. I'm absolutely hunky-dory. It was suspected appendicitis, but turns out just a big pain. And I'm in my early 30s, so glad it's nothing more sinister, but just overwhelmed at how excellent everyone at Northern General Hospital is and their colleagues throughout the wider National Health Service. So, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. How about you, Ed? Yeah, I'm good. They don't really tell you that when you turn 30, that just sometimes things are going to hurt. And that's just kind of how it's going to be. So enjoy that. Thank you. (laughs) It's going to be, should be in one of the, should be in the birthday cards. Uh, uh, But no, I'm I'm good. Uh, I was just wondering, it's been a few weeks uh, since we last recorded. And you as sort of the, the Glasgow correspondent on this show, I was just wondering, how's the city reacting to its success in the feature film The Batman and the world apparently associating the grim and gritty Gotham with, uh, <laughs> and the, you know, as the, the absolute hell on earth um, with the city of Glasgow <laughs> as you actually know it? Well, we are at the point where Gotham and Glasgow are interchangeable, seeming as we have filmed not one, not two, but three bat films on the bat trot. And it does feel at times, particularly in winter, it it feels quite Gotham-y. I'm Mm. not sure who the hero is we need or what we deserve, but Glasgow also features a lot of beautiful sandstone architecture, which I don't think gets featured in this sort of, uh, proliferation of American films using particularly the very centre of Glasgow as a, as a grid that's um, and this is where I geek out a bit about Glaswegian architecture a lot of the architects that were fundamental in um, changing Glasgow's cityscape then went on to America to places like Chicago um, uh-huh. so Glasgow and Chicago are meant to be like cousins in terms of uh, sort of architecturally um so it's it's odd living on a film set that emphasizes anything but the city that you're in um Mm -hmm. you know chris thorburn friend of the podcast and excellent comedian um sort of points out you know it's nothing new to have someone sort of wandering around being like how did you get those scars like we know (laughs) we we entirely understand um so definitely keep following chris if you want more uh uh glasgow gotham content i i am i'm still i i'm still just amazed that we had an indiana jones film um a, a big part of the most recent one shot here and that was really fun seeing like um because I think it was just the set dressing was incredible to sort of see the sight lines and the angles. Um, plus there were horses and I, it's just my favorite thing, Ed, to see a horse and think, you don't know you're in a film. <laughs> yeah. So that was nice. So far, not, not too much sort of that effectory. I think, I think because it, it just seems to be that the traffic shut off in the center of town so often everyone's like, Oh, what is it? Another bat thing? Or is it a, or is it one of them fast and furiouses? Um, but I think, uh, I think Glasgow has a certain, um, quite a sort of nonchalant pride about these sorts of things. Um, mm. you know, we don't sort of point these things out unlike Edinburgh, <laughs> who has a big, uh, a big sign being like, this is where that Avengers thing happened. <laughs> and also, uh, let's not forget the most important, um, film to be, uh, shot in Scotland, um, Eurovision, Song of Ice and Fire, uh, where mm. it does appear that the um, that that Eurovision is being held in Scotland, 
um, it seems to be a bit confused because it thinks that the hydro is uh, in Edinburgh. I mean, it looks very nice on the outside. It's very much in Glasgow. And it's just one of those things where you watch people sort of hightailing it out of Edinburgh thinking, oh my God, you've got like a 45 minute journey on the motorway. <laughs> this is, <laughs> I know you can go really fast on the motorway, but as high, high speed chases go, this is quite a distance you have to cover. Um, but I'm afraid I could talk about um, uh, Scotland and it's, somewhat complicated relationship with uh things that get shot here for hours and hours so maybe that's something we can cover another time ed um mm. but what's been what's been bloody going on because I, I i remain not on social media and was in hospital for about 36 hours which which means i feel very out the loop uh well not a huge amount as far as i could tell in just doing a quick like summary and also yeah don't want to kind of rush through three weeks worth of news um obviously the awards season is still going apace and you know various films seem to be rising and falling it seems to be that power of the dog is the odds on favorite at the moment but coda might be having a late resurgence jane campion of course uh won at the uh critics choice awards i think she won best director uh, and made uh, one of the all-time gaffes where she was, you know, talking, and then she said, you know, talking about Serena and Venus Williams, who were there in depend in uh, attendance because of the um, awards nominations for King Richard, and she said uh, basically, you know, like they're good, but they don't have to play against the boys like she does, and uh, that became a bit of a uh, storm in a teacup for about twenty-four hours until she apologized and said, yeah, that was not the best way I could have said that although very much in keeping with any interview i've ever read of jane campion it reads very much a you know a woman who has been around for a long time has achieved a decent amount of success and really will just say whatever the hell she wants and is often very funny and very entertaining doing it and in that instance uh things didn't didn't quite land how she probably would have wanted them to yeah i think she's also someone who is refreshingly out of the pr circuit but that means mm. that you're more likely to misunderstand your audience and i think it's it's hard out there and i would say that jane campion is first and foremost an iconoclast Mm -hmm. And I think it's immensely difficult when you're in a position as a director, which is a position of leadership and can be quite isolated. As a woman, I think it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the solidarity of feminism. Um, mm. And that doesn't mean that it's unfeminist at all. But I do think it's a kind of jarring of because i also think that that comment's actually factually incorrect because even though serena and venus williams don't physically play against men i'm not that up on my tennis i don't think they do mixed doubles but as far as i'm aware they they don't um play men in matches they are constantly compared to men and overlooked mm. <laughs> for for men so it's just like oh jane no that's not i it, it, it's it's just not a clever comment because it's not for, for one it's not particularly kind or in solidarity but it's also just incorrect and i'm like jane you're smarter than that come on <laughs> yeah yeah it definitely felt like uh a, a a badly phrased faux pas more than anything else. Um, and, you know, the speed with which you apologised for it and the sincerity of it, you know, you know I think um, felt, felt rang true to me. Definitely felt like, uh, you know, some, someone talking off the cuff and being very excited at having, you know, won an award and being um, embraced by the critical community in the industry in a way that hasn't been the case for her since, you know, the early 90s yeah. um just kind of getting taken away with it and you know misspeaking and then uh, in other news uh, sadly this week william hurt passed away william hurt of course uh, an american actor who has been uh, working solidly and been around for for decades i think probably most famous 
nowadays uh, for a lot of people for his work in the MCU as uh, Thunderbolt Ross, but more notably, I think, sort of for, for you and I, we were talking about his performance in um, Broadcast News um, as being a particular highlight, uh, you know, in a, in a film that already boasts kind of a powerhouse performance by Holly Hunter and a great term by Albert Brooks. Uh, he delivers a performance in that movie, which I think could be just played as like a total dimwit or lunkhead but um he brings like a real depth and nuance to it that you know really sets that apart uh obviously won an oscar for kiss the spider woman um and it's just uh you know been one of those people who in his film work you know has just been a very constant solid presence in films for a very very long time absolutely i think the difficulty again and we were talking about this and in, in the wake of, of the news of his death is that he was someone who brought a unique sensitivity and depth to every role he played like even thinking about like Ned Racine in Body Heat like he could so mm. easily and I think and I think Broadcast News is the epitome of, of the skill that he had where he was able to be you felt like a real person who happened to be trying to be a certain character as this presenter but of course it, it, it's incredibly difficult to wholeheartedly celebrate a legacy on on screen that is so sensitive with knowing you know that the, his behavior off screen and particularly regarding his relationship with Marley Matlin mm-hmm. um um, off the back of um, Children of a Lesser God, which I think is such a, an incredible film and really ahead of its time. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's interesting because also it makes me feel that, you know, not to sort of bring up the double C word again, but council culture isn't real because mm. <laughs> he, you know, at no point did he drop out in his career. He, he, he continued to work and... I don't have a solution because his performances are some of my favourites. I've not actually seen The Kiss of the Spider Woman and I'd very much like to, as I know that was one that he was particularly lauded for. Again, the appropriateness of a of a white <laughs> um, American citizen playing this kind of character. There's a there's a lot of untangling we we have to do and in terms of thinking, you know, there's nothing we could change then, but what can we do going forward? And I, I still don't have the solution because William Hurt is someone whose screen presence I will mourn, but mm. also, also kind of the kind of light, I don't know whether light's the right word, but almost like, was he sort of a, a Trump guy? I mean, I know he was quite uh, vocal about his 9-11 trutherism. So again, a complicated, flawed human being and an actor of great skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'll always uh, remember, I think the first time I ever really remember noticing him was in um, History of Violence, where he shows up in like, The Last Third and is kind of the villain of that movie. And just the uh, skill he brought to that role and making it feel like very distinctive and not just an, a, you know another mob-heavy or you know kind of like criminal underworld heavy like he he kind of brought a real humanity to it um yeah it's just a, a terrible shame that apparently uh some of that didn't cross over into the real world so we'll go on to our main topic for this week uh emily uh you uh came up with this topic why don't you uh set out for us sure so of course ed i'm going to mention the film the film being phantom thread <laughs> um <laughs> But overall, the topic that I would like to bring to the table is toxic femininity, because in terms of a cultural discourse, I feel that there's been a lot of discussion about toxic masculinity, and for good reason, but mainly focusing on character and character arc. This isn't really something that I want to... It's less about off-screen um, behaviour 
mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of what we were discussing just there in terms of um, William Hurt's personal legacy rather than his professional one. So it's not so much about how people behave in quote-unquote real life. It's more to do with the characters and archetypes that are being played with and that seem to kind of come to the cultural fore. Because because from my understanding, the golden age of TV was sort of kicked off by toxic masculinity and explorations thereof. I mean, there was a book that was released uh, not that long ago called Difficult Men, which is a really excellent um, sort of treatise and investigation of particularly HBO's output of programming that seemed to be, you know, again, quality. But, but had these um, underlying structures and dynamics to them. And the thing that I found really interesting is that I think that's beginning to happen with femininity and with women. Um, because again, looking at, for example, someone like Wes Anderson, who has a lot of male roles, I wouldn't say he's dealing with toxic masculinity in his characters, I think often he's actually providing an alternative masculinity and something quite feeling. So it's not as straightforward as there are more women being represented, but I do think off the back of more women being represented or more women characters being seen as um, as viable financial and cultural creative products, we are able to see more of a range and I think, mm. and I think, funnily enough, it stops being about representation and aspiration. So, my kind of uh, um, paradigm of toxic femininity is Alma from the film *Phantom Thread*, because she is someone whose femininity is, I mean, quite literally toxic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the film seems to side with her. She is our protagonist, whereas typically Reynolds would be the protagonist. And he is a toxic masculine force who is is within an essentially feminized realm. Uh, he's very coddled. Um, he is constantly flanked by women. And I think Cyril, um, his sister is also a very interesting kind of sort of elements of toxic femininity. But I think Alma, for me, is so much the paradigm because it's the typically feminine things that she uses that are dialed all the way up. So things like, you know, for example, nourishment also also leads to um, bodily harm, which, you know, Reynolds is an emetophobe. Great. Um, Emetophile, sorry. (laughs) from phobe file, but also a lot of her you know I, I think the sort of almost the midpoint of that film is the confrontation they have at dinner where she wants things done her way but it's still apparently in a position of, of service or submission and I think that is fundamentally that's something that's culturally very feminine and it's how she then uses that to come out on top in this power dynamic and also you and I have watched Yellow Jackets which mm-hmm. uh, I think it, it's a it's a thumbs up from from both the the um, UK and US HQs of uh, SRS and I think there's so much to enjoy and to speak about Yellow Jackets and I'm going to try and keep it keep a lid on it because I know it's still a very recent offering in terms of um telly i think it's so crucial to give people a good a good birth <laughs> before um spoilers so i'm going to be talking about it quite lightly but the performances across the board are amazing and because the cast of characters is made up of teenage girls and their early to mid 40s kind of later selves there is such a like rich and dense character arc 
to explore for all of them and how even before trauma hits them, there are toxic elements to their behaviour, to themselves and to each other. And I think because we're able to move away from the really quite heavy normative pressures of representation and aspiration you know we we can explore more interesting characters because the weight isn't you have to behave as a perfect role model and I think the writing of Yellow Jackets in particular presents morality in a very interesting way I think it doesn't shy away from the fact that a lot of the actions of these characters are not perfect but they make sense given who these characters are and it's just really refreshing to see that happen with 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 majority characters who were women that was happening what 20 years ago when we were sort of kicking off with with the Sopranos and then Breaking Bad and, and things later on and I think also another thing that kind of made me think about this is this sort of I don't want to say resurgence, but like a real emergence of woman-focused horror in the past kind of, Mm. I'd say now like five to eight years. And I think this kind of rolls on from Laura Mulvey's final girl theory in that often sort of in, in horror films throughout the kind of 70s and 80s, the more androgynous a woman was and the less kind of obviously femme or sexualized she was, the more likely she was to survive. So the idea was that the fewer feminine qualities you have, the more likely you are to survive. Or there are, in in, in the case of Laurie Strode in Halloween, for example, you can knit and look after children, but don't you be having blonde hair and riding in cars with boys. It's very much a normative structure placed on um the likelihood of your survival as a woman in horror but now with kind of horror films and quite maximalist kind of and i'd say kind of surreal maybe gory films like like body horror essentially um things like titan raw you know jennifer's body a girl walks home alone at night that there's just been this kind of interest in and I was saying Yellow Jackets as well, whether, whether sort of horror is a lot to do with sort of trauma or understanding and expressing kind of what it's like to be um, in a woman's body. And again, I, I realise I should <laughs> I should have said this earlier, but I would like to point out, I know I'm talking quite distinctly in, in sort of cis terms because there is still sadly a shockingly poor lack of any kind of representation or inclusion of trans and queer communities and I think I'm, I'm still very keen to term this as toxic femininity because I think we are talking about feminine qualities not necessary which doesn't necessarily mean cis women because we can talk about kind of characteristics of toxic masculinity in, in, in women characters and, and this kind of thing as well but I do think it just seems to be a, a, re- a really exciting time because I think it, it's that more, it's not something I've really seen massively before. But Ed, I think you have something to say about kind of maybe um, toxic femininity in film noir. Yeah, so when we were kind of like discussing doing this as a topic, obviously there were a lot of modern examples that we were that that came up. Yellow Jackets, of course, being the the, the great uh, jumping off point um, for people who don't know. Yellow Jackets is a show that's on Showtime that aired its first season a few months ago, which it takes place in two timelines: one in the early '90s where this uh, high school girls uh, soccer team uh, crash lands in the woods of Canada and you know is is forced to survive. And then those survivors 20 years later. And that, I think, like you say, has, has a, a broad range of characters who all exhibit different kinds of um, toxic behaviours as, as um, relates to their, their, their feminine traits. But um, when I was also trying to look back and trying to think of like what are more older historical examples, I think that um, the first thing that came to my mind was the very notion of the femme fatale in, in film noir. And obviously like the archetypal example of that would be Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, where you know you have this basic idea of a woman 
using her sexuality to seduce a man and then convince him to murder her husband. And I think there you see the the movie uh, Anne Stanwyck playing with different ideas of femininity in that she is both that were very sensual uh, being someone who is interested in sex, but also uh, there is um, she's playing on the ideas of, of helplessness, the idea that she convinces this man that she's in this, you know, this loveless marriage and she's trapped in it. And the only way that she can get out is if he helps her kill her husband. And I think that is a trope that you see over and over again and is kind of endemic to the character of the femme fatale is that they will entice men into committing acts of violence on their behalf, often through presenting themselves as this almost a caricature of the male image of a helpless woman who needs to be protected by a big, strong man. Um, and so I think if we're talking about the idea of feminine traits, which again, I, you know, the, I guess this is all kind of tied into the idea of what society believes to be feminine traits. Um, that idea of helplessness, of needing protection, is, I think, one of the elements of it that is most often pushed to its extreme in fiction. Uh, and, you know, and that is the thing that, that female characters, particularly ones who want to manipulate men into doing something, that's the element that they will really, really push because that's the part that will, um, that's like a lever they can use to get what they want within a patriarchal uh, system. Absolutely. And I think what is so key about the femme fatale, as you say, is is not necessarily the sort of leading with the sensuality and the sexuality, but it is exactly that helplessness. And it's using the, it's kind of using their own sense of of projecting a character, of projecting a character Mm -hmm. of um, a helpless woman and, and using that to their advantage and of course with with femme fatale it's never really sort of it's never really presented as liberation it's 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 sort of material gain or like it's it's quite nefarious right um Mm. but also as you were um describing femme fatale i realized that i think that's part of why i love under the skin so much as well Mm. is is that it's kind of a sci-fi noir because we do have this being who is a femme fatale and and uses femininity to lure men specifically human men scottish human men as well extremely scottish oh like sort of (laughs) really to the max glaswegian men um (laughs) i mean they must just be the most tender that's they are they talk a big game but they're all softies in, inside uh, at least from my experience moving swiftly on and, and again there's this kind of helplessness of like do you know the way to the m8 which mm-hmm. if you're in glasgow you, you cannot move for the m8 it rips through the center of the city so it's kind of it's kind of a little joke of like of course you'd know where the m8 is like um and the fact that she has an english accent as well very interesting Anyway, before I go into another thing that I could talk for hours about, I I think what's also really moving about Under the Skin is at the end when this creature sheds this skin and looks at it and, and, and looks at this sort of feminine... I, th- I think that's the closest I've ever felt to seeing a film made by a man getting to what it can feel like to be a woman sometimes, particularly me as, as a cis woman, you know, that, that so much of gender is performance, classic Judith Butler, um, and that there is this, you know, even if you are an alien being, if you appear as a woman on planet Earth, you are just as vulnerable as any other woman. It, it was, I think that's part of what makes really excellent sci-fi is that it broadens the comparison to get closer to what it means to be human and I think as gendered sci-fi you can't really get better than under the skin so I would say again toxic femininity doesn't necessarily mean you are a nefarious character or you're you're setting out your your, your gains are somehow sort of selfish or psychopathic it can also be 
survival. Um, mm. And which, of course, talking about Yellow Jackets, survival is the name of the game. And I think the character that really stood out for me as, again, a, a, a real juicy paradigm of toxic femininity is Misty Quigley, mm-hmm. who is played to absolute perfection by both uh, both cast members playing her and her teenage and her later self. And that she is someone who is, I think, fundamentally kind of like a different spin on the know-it-all, but someone who is so desperate for connection that she can't see that manipulated connection isn't real. It has to be completely on her terms. She is a nurse in her later life and she is so desperate to be the savior like it's a really interesting spin on a savior complex to the point where it's like she will intentionally make things worse just in order to fix them Mm. and i haven't really seen that as an expression of power because i think that is fundamentally a very feminized expression of power um an ability but yeah um a lot of uh, misery, Kathy Bates vibes too. Yes, definitely. Um, I think as well, and I guess this is, it's an early thing that happens in, in Yellow Jackets, so like a slight spoiler, but if, so if you want to skip ahead a minute, Misty kind of commits probably the biggest crime in this show in the sense of like the thing that really kind of like dooms them all to be trapped there, which is that she destroys the black box for the plane when she finds it because she has become so in love with the fact that she is the one that everyone started to rely on because she has a load of like basic knowledge of survival that the notion of them being rescued seems a threat to her and so you know that is a case of that like you say that desire for connection for community to be part of the team in the way that she isn't otherwise because she's you know always on the sidelines um, literally, yeah, that that's the thing that pushes her to do the the, the thing that um, kind of precipitates a lot of the other terrible things that happens to all the other characters. Ed, when I saw that, I screamed <laughs> it, because it is it is her action that then that 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 does kickstart absolutely everything else, and again. Absolute kudos to Yellow Jackets for being so packed of twists and turns that are also immensely plausible whilst having a supernatural element running through it that I actually was like, oh yeah, of course, that that happened so early on. I'd basically almost forgotten <laughs> that mm-hmm. happened because so much goes down. Yes, I'm a Yellow Jackets fan. I, th- I think it's just a, such a stunning entertaining piece of uh television it manages allegory it manages kind of real brutal bitty stuff and no shade against damon lindelof but the mysteries aren't like here's a polar bear and some numbers um Mm -hmm. it's uh there's a lot to um a lot to grapple with it and again um jackie one of the um characters she doesn't kind of um, blend in with the survivalist tactics as much as the others. Like the others really sort of go to ground, as it were, and, and kind of accept their situation. Whereas she is very understandably a bit more of a teenage girl about it. And mm. her reluctance starts to get noticed. And her kind of, the skill that she was bringing to the group was that she was actually fantastic at keeping a sort of bond through the group because she was uh i think team captain as they were soccer uh they're a soccer team and it's amazing how that skill that she has the writers are able to play with it really deftly because you absolutely cannot tell whether it is the thing that's going to help her survive or not like sometimes it seems to be she also seems to welcome in things um without realizing and I think that element of the context and the situation has changed. So her very natural, understandable response becomes toxic is also really interesting. Mm, yeah. 
in terms of other examples of feminine ideas being pushed to extremes, I thought that um, one of the interesting areas where I think you see a lot of that happening is uh, around the ideas of motherhood and mm. perversions of motherhood, in a sense. There's other examples that immediately left to mind one serious and one uh, less serious, uh, Piper Laurie in Carrie, um, yeah. where you have the idea of a character who is so committed to the idea of protecting her daughter from like the the sinful secular world that she pretty much that she shames her for having a period for her with you know, the way her body is you know it's meant to naturally act um and i think that there you see a lot of that in terms of the ways in which i think toxic femininity plays into uh or, or the way in which movies and tv shows play with the idea of, of motherhood in that way is taking a mother who is so protective or overprotective that they in some way stunt the development of their uh of their child and the other example we already mentioned her but kathy bates as uh, bobby boucher's mother in the water boy <laughs> oh, yeah. which is like totally that as well like so overprotective doesn't want anything to happen to her child but in doing so just like basically completely lies to him about basic facts about his life and you know as kept him unable to kind of really relate to the world around him and i I, so i think those felt like the uh the the two extremes of that kind of mother figure and the way in which um movies and tv shows like to play with that trope oh absolutely like a sort of um overbearing maternal figure um is absolutely toxic femininity as uh, as yours truly um, hypothesizes it, and to add to that, also Black Swan, I think, mm. is a really fantastic. I would argue, kind of four point of toxic femininity, where you have the the white swan struggling to also dance the black swan, her rival, her mother, and a wonderful turn by Winona Ryder, which I think. Is the only instance of a character arriving late and leaving early that I will allow <laughs> in any mm. screenplay because she makes her presence absolutely felt and it brings such depth to the film as this kind of warning and and and, and the the sense of kind of that there's not really a way to win. um and i think Mm. i think black swan and the wrestler are companion films and they are a film about the performance of toxic masculinity and a performance of toxic femininity and they are so bodily that they are so based in 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 the body but also in kind of pain and and effort and power and let's not forget both of these films end in in fatality you know the the excessive performance of gender leads to death like there's there's no there's no kind of subtlety in that Darren Aaron Aaron Aronofsky but I think again that sort of Cushing and 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 a lot of the sort of male influence of um Vincent Cassell's um ballet instructor teacher also shows that toxic femininity isn't necessarily a self-directed path it can also be surprise surprise gender is a prison and and patriarchy hurts everyone but yeah i think black swan is is also like a really interesting example of a range of of different ages because even though i would argue that like toxic femininity is has has become clustered and and like i say i sort of bring it up now because it does seem to be happening more and more between the past five to eight years it's not necessarily just about young women and i also find that really exciting or young people sort of exhibiting toxic feminine traits and i'd say Another example um, that's reasonably relevant, I suppose, because it is in the um, in the awards uh, categories this year, is the lost daughter. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask you uh, how you felt that one figured into that conversation. Yeah, it's interesting because I think what I really enjoy is that there is this kind of. I think the dynamic between. Olivia Coleman and Dakota Johnson is incredibly rich and I could watch the two of them together all day and that, that they are kind of looking for themselves in the other 
for kind of reassurance mm -hmm. and then there is something that kind of there's that tension and that tussle and then something that kind of possibly breaks that but I also really enjoy seeing characters who relate with an age gap and that it's not mm -hmm. necessarily a romantic relationship or that there is this kind of oh are you are you like me are we women who are fighting against a certain idea of how we should be as mothers and I would argue that both of them kind of flick between different kind of perspectives of toxic femininity due to age due to class due to experience and I'm I'm all for it I think my only sort of personal criticism of The Lost Daughter is I don't think it went kind of far enough I think it tries to tie itself up a little bit too neatly and I actually really enjoyed the mess that it um accurately depicted but yeah who knows we'll, we'll see if anyone wins big that'll be one on the scoreboard for toxic femininity. Mm, yeah, I think it's really interesting to see a movie really examine characters who seem am like actively ambivalent about motherhood. Yeah, which is not a subject that I think gets tackled very often. Like, I think a lot, even shows and movies that do kind of like try and faint that way will ultimately sign up, uh, fall on the side of like oh you know obviously it's a miracle and you know it's deeply enriching there's not really that many they just kind of like say yeah sometimes it's just sucks and you don't have any profound <laughs> realizations about yourself yeah. <laughs> you just kind of are left thinking like oh maybe maybe i wasn't cut out for this uh, the only other thing i can think of that ever really touched on that was malcolm in the middle mm. which i think I think it was after after they did the um, birth of the fourth child, no, the like fifth child, um, sort of midway through the run, there was an episode where Lois got very upset at the fact that she just didn't like the new baby. Um, and it got to, a, Hal eventually had to talk with her saying, like, you didn't like any of the children born. <laughs> like, you know, you just got to give it time. But that was like the only other thing I could really think of that fairly head-on tackled the idea of having a child but not really being able to relate to it until also obviously the other example you know more extreme would be we need to talk about kevin <laughs> of course yeah yeah which goes in a very extreme direction <laughs> yeah completely and it and it, there is something quite um I, I i think generally sort of the tests and trials of motherhood in the kind of more everydayness of it tends to be in TV because it's almost like, oh, this is the domestic space. Like television is kind of allowed to do this. So, mm. you know, a lot of Sharon Horgan's handiwork over the past sort of five years, like Catastrophe and, and Motherland, of course, kind of show the, just the sort of unrelenting stress of, of raising children and that it's it's difficult and that just because you gestated and gave birth to a person it doesn't necessarily mean you're any sort of more adept at looking after them um and i think that's something i've always enjoyed about catastrophe is seeing how rob and sharon seem to be very equal <laughs> in their sort of division of parenting and then also their uh their, their sharing in in both the highs and and, and lows of it and, I, and I'd also say it feels amiss of me not to so to mention The Lost Daughter and then not also mention The Favourite, which I think is mm. a really fantastic, again, sort of three-hander of, of women using different feminine traits in a society that expected women to be certain things publicly, but then could kind of do things privately and, and the sort of tension of that and... Um, yeah, I, oh, I love the favorite. It's such a great film. And then again, I was thinking of um, Rosemary's Baby. Oh yeah, Ruth Gordon's character mm. as the neighbor because I think she is also someone who is able to use, you know. And again, it's that the sucker of oh, did you think the little old lady next door was nice? <laughs> <laughs> That's on you. She knew exactly what she was doing. So yeah, it's it's kind of a it. It's an interesting thread to pull and I'm looking forward to seeing kind of more, you know, more happening. And, and you know, I, I love uh, Destroyer because, of course, I'm a big Karen Kusama fangirl. And, and I think um, 
and of course Karen Kasama also directed Jennifer's Body and I think the way that and the pilot of Yellow Jackets as well of course yes oh Karen you absolute babe and and I think she and, and with the invitation as well with them um, sort of one of the protagonists of the invitation again that kind of I guess you could also say toxic femininity has a lot to do with, if we're going right back in terms of comparisons, the sirens. Like there was mm-hmm. that kind of like lure that, you know, the song is so beautiful, you you forget temporarily about the rocks that are going to sort of crush you to your death. But I think it's just an exciting time to see, because it's not just as straightforward as like a complicated woman character. We, we, we do have lots of them, but I think it's specifically this kind of wielding of feminine traits that, you know, you could argue that, and just like that, the Sex and the City sequel slash reboot may not be as aware of its toxic femininity as perhaps it should be. <laughs> um, mm. But it's, it's around. It's, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing in other genres not necessarily sort of like just horror or like survivalist because i think it still has a lot rooted in in body horror because again that's what black swan is essentially and you could argue the same with under the skin but something where all of the guts and stuff remains intact but other stuff happens that's my wish list i guess Mm, yeah i I think comedy seems like a particularly fruitful Mm. genre for it um certainly Historically, I think you could point to something like Drop Dead Gorgeous, I think, Absolutely. is a good example. Uh, particularly the idea of like the, the, the show mom and the idea of someone trying to like live out their dreams through their daughter. Um, uh, to, the, to the extent of, sorry, spoilers, I guess, to get murdering a bunch of teens. Um, spoilers for a nearly 30-year-old movie. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think there's so many... Uh, great comedies written by women kind of around at the moment I think I I really wish I'd watched it in advance of this but like Pen15 I think like played with some of those ideas but yeah I think you could really do something interesting with the idea of really pushing the boundaries of what quote-unquote women are expected to do in a comedy um, that isn't just falling upon the like um, you know the bridesmaids thing of Women can be filthy too, and they can shit in a sink. Because you could argue, I think D from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" it springs to mind, and I think, yeah. she, I yeah, think yeah, yeah. she veers between being one of the guys and then this sort of toxic femininity. And Caitlin Olsen is just like a comic genius, like to be playing that character. One of the best characters in TV for nearly, again, nearly twenty years at this point. Which is wild to think about, but far and away, like I just have to think of her doing the same movements as those, like flappy arms sort of inflatable (laughs) figures that you have outside of the car sale like that is just i think possibly my favorite minute of footage of anything ever and then i'd also say sort of comedy dramedy wise i think i hate susie um Mm -hmm. and i'm Mm -hmm. like just chomping at the bit for a second series when obviously everything's safe enough to do so but i think that's really amazing particularly in terms of the um of her agent and friend and that there is this incredibly complicated relationship between the two of them and that they sort of understand each other better than anyone else but they don't particularly like themselves so that's a problem but her kind of wondering whether she's going to become a mother but that her success is entirely entwined with someone else's and also she just feels completely um you know thankless for it as well in the same way i think it's such a it's such a brilliant dynamic that we don't see very often mm, yeah so we'll end this show as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well funnily enough given um that i just mentioned her um it is a fantastic be kind rewind piece about ruth gordon's journey to her oscar i really enjoy be kind rewinds content i think video essays are sort of concise but also very dense as much as I absolutely adore a big chunky three plus hour um, video essay that you know contains no filler 
sometimes you have a lunch hour, Ed, and sometimes you only have so much that you uh, time that you can spare. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just under half an hour, and it's a really fascinating journey of Ruth Gordon's sort of entire career, her attitude, the sort of response to her by others the context of the other nominees as well i really appreciated that level of detail because i think beyond the year of the awards themselves nominations are often forgotten <laughs> and it's often mm. and it's normally only brought up and like you'll never guess who won instead of this was also nominated this year which can feel a bit sort of pithy and and look i enjoy pith as much as the next person but it's really it was really refreshing to see the kind of the range of roles at the, at the time and the, and the women um, bringing them to the fore. And I just love everything to do with Ruth Gordon. So it was just a really lovely um, half hour to sort of almost feel like I spent in her company. Um, so that is Be Kind Rewinds, Ruth Gordon's Journey to Oscar. Cool. Uh, I've got uh, one recommendation and one plug. Uh, the plug is that I was on the Games on Film podcast this past week to Ooh. talk about The Matrix. Um, and the various video games that have spun off from The Matrix. Uh, it was a very fun time. You get to hear me talk at length about just how strange like The Matrix Online is, um, or was, R.I.P. But uh, So yeah, so you can find that where all good podcasts are. And then I'm going to recommend a movie from 1981 that I watched for the first time recently. It's a documentary called Dance Craze, which is about the two-tone movement um, oh, of Scar. Uh, it's directed by Joe Mascot, who also previous, who also directed um, the song "Remains the Same," the kind of legendary Led Zepp concert movie, and it's just a bunch of performances from bands like uh, Bad Manners, Madness, The Beat, The Body Snatchers, The Specials, and The Selector, and it's just a collection of a bunch of really great bands performing uh, some fantastic songs for eighty something minutes. It's currently on youtube if you just search for it it's kind of like a crt scan which really only adds to the atmosphere of it all mm-hmm. um and there's just yeah there's just some fantastic performance and it's so much fun to watch you know the specials tearing it up or madness really just letting themselves loose on uh, some of their early hits and yeah i had an absolutely fantastic time with it so that's uh, dance craze which again you can find on youtube and uh, yeah uh, me being on games on film podcast um, which you can find uh, where, wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fans, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.